The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner. Sitting next to my co-host, Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. It's good to see you as usual. Ethan is also a certified financial planner with a master's degree in financial planning and a principal in empirical wealth management. Ethan, I thought today on our show we could talk uh, a little bit about a variety of investment topics in the media, and the financial media, and some things that our listeners and uh, clients and Prospective clients might want to consider when making decisions in today's market. Okay. This show is designed to share with you investment and financial planning ideas to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. If you'd like to participate in the program, this, we are broadcasting live right now. Um, you can call in at 866-472-5790. 866 or shoot us an email at um, contact at empiradio.com. That's contact at empiradio.com. And if you do shoot us a, an email or a question, we'll be happy to send you one of our favorite investment books today. That's a good deal. Yeah, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Ethan, before we get started with a variety of investment topics, say, would you mind sharing what we, how we may be able to help an individual out there and, yeah, I and think- or financial advisor? Yeah, there's uh, primarily two ways. I think if you'd like to maybe get a second opinion in your portfolio, maybe you're investing in your own right now, um, don't know exactly what to do, if you're in the right allocation altogether, uh, we we will happily provide a second opinion just in your portfolio. Um, Also, as you know, Ken, my emphasis really is on financial planning, and a lot of times we, we get together with folks just for an initial meeting. I'm able to point out several key areas in which they can improve their financial situation, whether it be tax related, uh, whether it be insurance related, uh, or, or otherwise, on top of just whatever investment strategy might, we might discuss. Um, so we'd happily do that as well. You know, it's no obligation, uh, free get together, just a chance for us to kind of, kind of talk, go over what your uh, your situation is, and and uh, see how we might be able to help. Um, and also, if you're an investment advisor out there, perhaps you're you know you're running your own firm, and you'd like to perhaps partner up with a very well established um, uh, firm in Seattle. Um, We'd love to hear from you as well. And we're looking to expand our uh, offices all over the country, Ethan. So you don't have to be located in Seattle for that to be a good fit for us. That's technically true, I suppose. And um, in in some of the discussions with 
that I've been having with advisors, Ethan, one of the things that's appealing to uh, a lot of advisors are, have been switching their uh, switching the way that they're doing business as as, as the uh, market is getting more educated about the way they they want to receive financial advice. Uh, some of the things about what we're doing at Empirical that that really make a good place to have a client advisor relationship to make us a good place for that is that we are fee only advisors if you want don't mind explaining that for a sec Ethan yeah basically the only way we're compensated is the fee that our clients pay us directly so that means we get nothing from any of the investment products we may recommend i.e. Uh, mutual funds or ETFs uh, or even insurance for that matter anything we recommend the only way we get compensated is what our clients agree to pay us in advance and we work in a fiduciary position with our clients. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, that just means basically we, we, we have to do what's in your best interest as a client. Whereas if you're working with in some other environment, um, you, know, you have to make sure the investments are suitable, but you don't have the same level of fiduciary responsibility to make sure those uh, recommendations are continually right for you. We're here we do. Great. Well, then... Um, I thought we could talk about a, a few things. Maybe one is we start with a discussion about what's been going on with the market in the context that uh, uh, just revisiting the context in which a person should review their their investment strategy. And, uh, you know, my associate Lynn here sent me several articles, and so does Eric, our research director. Mm-hmm. And uh, he scans through the financial media, and, and it's interesting to see. I am assuming that that they get a sense of what people, or at least what they believe people are <clears throat> interested in. And part of that, I, I notice a lot of it is they follow where money is going. So in all these, there's a um, discussion we can talk about what's going on in the inflation protected uh, treasury market. And so money has been coming out of, of what we call TIPS or Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on in the municipal bond market? Uh, you know what, and what's been happening there in terms of investors putting money, protecting your portfolio uh, from a downturn. There's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about uh, research and studies about how to look at mutual funds, and we can certainly comment on that. And part of that, though. I'm noticing a trend with these articles is that money has been flowing into the into these types of strategies, which would also include uh, things like low volatility. I know, I know, we've talked about that on the program, or Eric has, mm-hmm. but um, it's interesting to see. And uh, the best place to hold REITs and MLPs, um, it. it a couple other topics, but uh, I, I thought we could start with something that we get because you know, I think we're pretty close to the front lines of, of how investors are are taking in information that they're getting through the financial media mm-hmm. or just tracking things online. And a common thing is we go through periods of time where certain parts of the market do better than others. And uh, sure. a very common you know, in the media, what's tracked very frequently is either the Dow Jones Industrial Index or, for U.S. equities, the S and P 500, and they've become pretty pretty uh, dominant in terms of measuring what's going on in the stock market. My question to you, Ethan, is the types of questions you get from clients about that. 
And is it really the best way to measure your performance? Oh, yeah. Great question. In fact, I just had a recent experience just, in fact, this week um, about something like this. I, I got a message from an existing client. Um, basically, was saying that, hey, the, the year-to-date performance on my total portfolio, while it's positive and it's good, um, it just is not what I'd expect given the market, what it's been doing. And in essence, he was comparing the, um, the performance of the S&P or the Dow Jones versus his portfolio. And, uh, and I'd mentioned, just to clarify, hey, it's not exactly the, the one, an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Um, first of all, your portfolio consists of stocks and bonds, not just 100% stocks. And even of the stocks, you, you, in this case, we had about, uh, you don't, we don't have any um, international or emerging markets in, obviously, the S&P 500, right? But inside the portfolio, we have those additional asset classes. And while that hasn't worked out in the short run, you know, the year-to-date numbers, for example, are pretty, well, they're a drastic difference between each other. And well, I have if you look here. through the end of May, just to keep it simple, where we can compare monthly data, the okay. S&P is up, was up about 15.37 for the year. Right. From January to through the end of, of May. Mm-hmm. Um, where if you look at uh, our kind of middle-of-the-road globally diversified equity model, it was up about 10.33%. Right. So clearly less than um, the S&P. No doubt. Now, if we run that same data back to January of 2000, you see a significant difference in the returns between the two. The globally diversified portfolio outperformed the S&P um, before any management fees uh, by over 3%, almost 4% actually, um, more than 4%. Per year, looking right? At, per year. Right. So if you put $100,000 into the S&P in January of 2000, it'd be <clears throat> about 142000 If you'd put it into the, the globally diversified portfolio, uh, it'd be about two hundred and forty-four thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, you, if if you just you can't look at it in any one individual year, you need to look back. And if you go back further than that, um, the results continue. The longer the term you have, yeah. I, I did something very similar. Um, I, I he, since, he, since he was talking about the short run, looking at just the year-to-date information. I decided to take a look back. Well, let's look at the previous six months. So look at basically from July to the end of 2012 and just re-examine the numbers there and see what we find. Well, it turns out that over that period of time, uh, from July 2012 through December 31st, 2012, the Dow Jones um, actually returned uh, 2% over that period of time, 2%, uh, where I had the international holdings and the emerging market holdings in this client's portfolio actually did 18% for the international small cap value, 15% for international core equity, uh, 15% for emerging markets. Uh, on the total, the portfolio performed um, uh, at a rate of 11% for that entire period, July through December, uh, while the Dow did, again, 2%. So you obviously benefited by being globally diversified over that period of time. And because it doesn't work out in every single time period, you had to basically flip-flop the next period. Importantly, though, over the entire period, you know, over the entire one-year span we were talking about, the Dow had returned 20%, while the stocks in the portfolio we were examining returned 22.47% over the same period. So you actually got better returns net net. It's just highlighting one particular period and focusing on you know what we're more familiar with, obviously, in the U.S., the Dow or the, the S&P, it may cause you to do things you normally wouldn't do if you had a bit of a broader perspective. Mm-hmm. 
So pretty useful conversation. I think it goes back to, hey, being globally diversified is, is a good thing. Uh, do I expect it to work out in every single period? You know, do I always expect the global diversified no. portfolio to beat any one of the assets? Of course not, right? I mean, I think that's the tough part about the traditional way that the investment world has uh, positioned their value mm-hmm. is that it is about timing in and out of the right segments of the market rather than having a, a sound uh, foundation of well, why do I own all these different asset classes and why would I continue to rebalance across them and stick with my strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, and over what time frame is reasonable for this to work out? Right. So, I mean, if you look at the at a longer term picture, and you said, "Well, if I went back <clears throat> to 1970 through May of of 2013, January of 1970," and you said, "Well, what's the S and P 500 done for this period of time?" You'd say that your worst, your if you took, you know, the very worst decline, it's dropped. The S and P's dropped on almost fifty-one percent. Um, the longest period of time it's taken to recover from one of its declines um, is about seventy-four months. In that, in 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 that scenario, if you took the average of the worst five drops of the S and P, you'd have negative thirty-seven percent. So. You'd want to know that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking at investing in the S and P. But if you said, "Hey, I'm adding in some other unique asset classes, some other," um, and part of it would be maybe I want to increase my return. Part of it might be I want to reduce some of the volatility of owning or the danger of just owning one country or one segment of one country, large U.S. companies, for example. And historically, to the degree that we could do that. And if we go went back into time and said, "Hey, what was available to diversify into back in 1970?" Well, we could have owned some small U.S. companies, some value companies, not just large, growthy companies. Mm-hmm. Could own some re- real estate or some REITs. We could have also owned some developed international uh, at at one point in the 70s. And as we got closer in time and closer to where we are today, we could have started to add other things like emerging markets and. What you see is you you are able to increase the the return, but you are able to do that with less volatility than the S and P five hundred in the globally diversified portfolio. Um, instead of seventy four months to recover is the longest recovery. The longest recovery was sixty three months, mm-hmm. so almost a year um, less of being in the negative. Uh, if you look at at the second longest recovery over that period of time for the S&P, it was uh, about 53 months versus 37 on the globally diversified. Right. I guess we've got to take a quick break, Ethan. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a quick break and uh, come back and, and pick up on this discussion. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E M P 
I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith, here. We're entering our second segment of the the program today. We're broadcasting live from the uh, Empirical Towers in beautiful downtown Seattle. Uh, Ken, for this segment, we were going to jump into some articles, I think, right? Yeah, I, I just wanted to to um, summarize what we were discussing before, because sometimes I think we get into a lot of data information. But what are we saying? You know, in, in, before we were going to the break, we were talking about why someone would choose to diversify their portfolio outside of owning the S and P five hundred or the Dow Jones Industrial Index, which are just measures, for all intents and purposes, of the larger U.S. companies, and why they would allow or, or be okay with the fact that any one month or even over a year or even over a few years or several, that it's there will be times where those particular indexes do better than a, than a very diversified portfolio. And I want to be clear that our advice on this is that's okay. That you don't need to start rearranging things and changing things and asking questions uh, about why you decided to diversify if you know your market history, and if you know, for example, that there was a 10-year period of time, Ethan, where the S&P in the 90s did very, very well relative to even other U.S. equity investments. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, even knowing that for 10 years, that there was a, if you picked a particular 10-year period where at the end of it, you'd be about the same, you know, if you bought a, a globally diversified portfolio versus buying the S&P in terms of the return you got, but it would have still been a superior approach to go with a diversified portfolio, partially because of risks that you don't even know about. Um, Japan, we were just talking about because it's in the news right now, what's going on, and for such a a long period of time, that country has struggled. Mm -hmm. But you don't know, um, just because it hasn't happened in the United States yet doesn't mean that you know uh, that it that it won't go through an extended period of time where it underperforms, and what we do know is trying to time in short intervals between different investment asset classes, stocks versus bonds, small versus large sectors of of the market does not work. And so I want to be crystal clear about that, Ethan. That we don't recommend doing that because it doesn't work. And how do we know it doesn't work? Because we look at the results. We look at the studies that measure the results 
of individual investors and professional investors who engage in that activity over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And those results tell us that no one's really been able to do it beyond luck or just chance or statistical chance. Uh, and it's almost impossible to identify anyone who can do that into the future. So even if someone did happen to navigate through the last 10 years in a, very well, it doesn't mean there's a guarantee that they will do it. And for most of us, there is plenty of return and there are plenty of risk management approaches that we can take that are grounded in fundamental economic um, principles that we don't have to engage in the game that Wall Street wants you to engage in, which creates transaction fees for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to be clear on that, that there, what we're saying is it's okay that just because the market goes down, and I was very upset about this during the, the financial crisis, that coming out of that, you know, the market's rebounded something like 130%, I think, from March of 2009. Mm-hmm. Um Every single one of the globally diversified portfolios that we put together are are ahead of where they were back then. They recovered very rapidly, and that was a point I was making about you know there are other th- reasons why you would diversify. It's not just hey, well, I'm only diversifying if it guarantees that my portfolio won't ever drop. If you're doing that, you don't understand mm-hmm. how markets work, and you also don't understand why you would want to diversify. But I was very upset back then, Ethan, because a lot of the investment product companies were creating all kinds of products that were saying, hey, diversification failed, and so you need a different strategy. Or even advisors that wanted to use it as a marketing tool. Because it's much easier to go along with the fear that someone is experiencing, rather than trying to convince them that the strategy um, that they're on may be very sound already, and that the reality is we can't always have our cake and eat it too. We can't get the returns we need in the long run to stay ahead of inflation, grow our portfolios, meet our financial objectives and goals, and have zero risk and not experience some of the, the cost of, of that. And the cost of that is that you'll have general market fluctuations and then you'll have global declines. Uh, systemic or systematic risk that that that, see, that you see that portfolio decline. There is no guarantee that you won't see that, and if you have that expectation, you will likely have a very long, painful investment experience that doesn't doesn't give you the the, the most out of what you, what you deserve by participating in in capital market returns. Mm-hmm. You know, I would add to that. You have you're talking primarily here about diversification among equity, uh, which I think is a good idea, uh, obviously. Um, and the research supports that. It isn't just something we came up with. Uh, but it also has to do with bonds. And I know recently, especially, bonds have not done particularly well, looking at the year-to-date returns or even the last few months. But looking, taking a step back from the recency and going, you know, let's, let's take a, a full year back in time. So a year ago from today, um, in the past, did we, did we know for sure stocks would perform as they did? And did we know that over the next year, stocks be, would offer 25% returns and that bonds would be much, much less than that? Well, of course we didn't. We had no idea that was going to occur. Yeah. Even though, with hindsight, boy, we should have loved to have owned all stocks and not owned any bonds over that same period of time. But it's the same decision today. I mean, do we know with certainty that the next year holds 100%, you know, uh, let's say 25% returns on stocks? 
well, no, we have we don't know what's going to happen with stocks in the sh- in the short run. So, I think it, th- therefore it makes some sense to have a balanced portfolio most of the time as well, particularly for folks who are taking money from a portfolio for for withdrawal purposes, particularly in retirement. Um, so, in other words, we're not be happy with the bond returns we've gotten over the last six months. But again, it's the same question right now: Do we have certainty of, of the outcome with with stocks over the next six months or a year? Well, no. Well, therefore, we should not have all our money in stocks. Basically, is what I'm getting at. And the balanced approach is, is certainly the best way to go because I think it's only the advantage of hindsight that gives us the impression that um, we, we should be questioning our strategy. You know, but really, it's the same question every day, and the answer always is stay diversified and choose the right allocation. In, in my mind, yeah, I agree with that. All right, Ethan. Well, let's talk about this. Um, let's pick one of these today. Um, one of these articles that I want to read. What's what's eating municipal bonds? Um, oh, yeah, let's talk about that. So one of the articles was um, in the Wall Street Journal here is what's eating municipal bonds. And um, you were, you had mentioned that this investor, I think it ties into what you were saying, had mentioned that one of the brokerage companies said, hey, I, I can manage your bond portfolio for free. We, we won't charge you to manage your bond portfolio. Right. And... Immediately, you knew there's something fishy going on here, <laughs> right? Indeed. Who? Why would any? Why would they do it for free? For example, right? Yeah. There has to be. And one of the big things that goes on in has gone on in the bond market is that individual investors have been taken advantage of for years, and part of that is because under current, even under current regulations, they are not required to. If if you call up your broker and you say, I, I want to buy a particular bond, let's say it's municipal bond, tax-free bond in a particular area, they will quote you a yield to maturity on that bond. So they might say, you know, and they give an example in the in the article, hey, I can get you this bond for a yield of 2.989%. Um, and that's great because maybe you'd have to earn 4.83% on a taxable taxable bond to to get that, right? But they're not disclosing what's called the markup. And so when you're buying bonds from a particular broker, a lot of times they buy these bonds, they put them in their inventory, just like if they were operating a retail store, mm-hmm. and um, then they're, they're marking them up and selling them to the public at a retail price. And what that markup is can be very large, and it's it's easier to hide that because if you're buying a bond that has a multiple year maturity you can in essence kind of spread some of that markup up over each year so it has a, a, a lower effect or, or seems to be a lower effect on the yield of maturity so for example if if um, there is a um, there is a system that got created recently and um, let me pull the refer to it in the article let me pull the article out here I don't know how much time through mm-hmm. um or they did a well. One thing they cite in here is that the SLCG study, um, Securities Litigation and Consulting Group, Ethan, they did a study that on, on uh, over you know millions of trades, and uh, one out of every twenty trades, people who bought two hundred fifty thousand dollars or less of municipal bonds paid a markup of at least three point zero four percent, or approximately a full year's worth of interest income at today's rates. By comparison, you'll pay less than $10 in commission if you buy a stock 
at most online brokers, or 0.004% on a $250,000 purchase, right, of stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, a typical mutual fund charges a management fee of about about 1% a year. So there is a system um, that the MSRB maintains a website. It's called Electronic Municipal Market Access, or they refer to it as EMMA, that shines some light into this shadowy world. And <laughs> what, it, what it, it allows you to do is see the transactions that are going through on particular issues. And you can see, you can't force the broker to give you their markup. Um, so if you, they're quoting you the bond, you can't say, hey, what are you guys making? Yeah. They don't, they're not obligated to tell you. Right. But what you can do is you can see what they've been buying that particular issue at and what they're selling them, what oh. the previous trades are. So in this particular ca- case, um, if you're buying a bond, look at all the, cus- look at all the customers' uh, bot trades to see what other customers paid. Uh, then say to your dealer, try and match this, for example. Um, you can take the QCIP number and um, and and basically you can see what you know. They give a good example where um, here it is. The MSRB maintains this website. So around take this example either around eleven seventeen this past Tuesday, um, it showed a customer sold a hundred thousand dollars in bonds issued by New York's uh, a bridge and tunnel authority. And the customer received a price of 105.26. And around 315, the dealer that bought those bonds resold them for 108.26, which was a spread of $3 or 2.8% mm-hmm. over the previous price. On February 27th, the customer sold 25,000 of the same bonds at 109 to a dealer who flipped them the next day for 113, a fat markup of 3.1%. So you can get an idea of what's going on right. by utilizing this. And some people, how much time do we have? About a minute? Okay. About a so minute. some people might say, well, geez, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Like the yield is, yield maturity is all I really care about. But what you don't maybe need to understand is that you could be getting, getting the same type of return by taking a lot less risk. Maybe you're getting a, uh, a junk bond, in essence, with that type of yield where you really could, you could be getting a high-quality bond uh, without, without the spread going on there, right? Right, it could really could change your your risk perspectives as well. Well, there are a lot of pitfalls with buying individual bonds, but I think the, one of the reasons why they get sold so frequently by brokers is because the brokers make a lot of money, and this isn't just the expensive brokers. This is what this goes on at, at yeah. discount brokers as well. Right. Um, but they get the the luxury of telling the client there really is no fee. Right. Right. We've got to take a quick break, Ethan. We'll be right back with Empirical Investing Radio. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. 
Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at empiricalfs.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio, your co-host here, Ethan Broga alongside uh, Ken Smith, just talking about uh, an article that recently appeared in the uh, Wall Street Journal. That's right, Wall Street Journal. It's got, entitled uh, Intelligent Investor, What's Eating Munis? And in, in it, we were just we're getting to the, the point of it, I think, before the break, was uh, the idea of the spread between what the bonds typically are, are purchased for by, say, a brokerage firm and then sold to, uh, to the individual investor. And the difference there is significant and can add up over time. And what's interesting is the brokerage firm is not uh, obligated to disclose the markup. You know how much are they actually paying for the bonds versus what they're selling them for. So you can calculate what what percent, you know, effectively the commission is. Because they say, hey, these are commission free, a lot of times, which technically is true. <laughs> but it's not like the brokerage firm is not making any money on the trade. You can be sure of that. And you just went through a couple of examples before the break that the average markup is around around three percent, which is a pretty big big chunk of change. And I think what we're dealing here with is, is a situation where the, it's, um, we have information asymmetry. You know, the, the seller has a lot more information than, uh, right. than the buyer does. And it's one of those things that, you know, um, buyer beware. If you don't know the actual price, you can pretty sure, be pretty sure it ain't in your favor, right? I think it's very, very important to be upfront and, and clear about how much you're paying for something. That's kind of how it works a lot of times in the brokerage industry anyway, aside from just the bond piece. But looking at uh, the typical model for an average brokerage firm, They'll tell you what, what fee they may charge. Hey, we charge 50 basis points, half percent to manage a portfolio for you. And that's the part the cost you're aware of. But maybe there's a lot of other costs inside there because they're going to use inevitably use funds or mutual funds that also have a cost with them. But because they're not exactly the same cost every fund, they get away with saying, well, there's some cost, but I can't tell you what that exactly is. But you can be sure you're paying something. And I think it's the same thing here where you don't know about it, so therefore you're, you're less concerned about it. And to put that in context, I was we were t- getting into the break here. Before we took the break, I was saying, well, p- investors, it's easy for bra- brokers to convince unsuspecting investors that they should let them buy, manage their, their bond, help them build a bond portfolio and do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're more than happy to sell you their bonds out of their inventory and position is, hey, there's no fee for this. The problems I've seen in these portfolios that get built that way is then the investor thinks, well, I'm saving all this money. I'm not, I'm not paying any management fees. I don't have to hire, hire a professional like Ethan here to help me construct something that gives me the highest probability of success uh, or any of these other things. I don't need that, and I don't also pay any mutual fund fees because right. a lot of the, these bond broker guys would position it as if mutual funds are bad for a lot of reasons. 
um, which isn't necessarily true. In fact, if if it's the right type of fund with the right type of diversification and management, there are some some significant benefits, <laughs> particularly if you're talking if you're not engaging up an independent professional. So in our case, when we pick individual bonds, a we can really hold the brokers accountable. We we there isn't going to be exactly that asymmetry. Right. We are going to make they're, they're going to have a hard time fooling us, and we put them out. We look out to bid in multiple brokerage companies, right. and we can use the system that I was just referring to, mm-hmm. which most individuals aren't going to do. But even then, we want to make sure that we know exactly why we're using these individual bonds and, and particularly munis. Because what if your tax situation changes? What if you're making a lot of money and suddenly you decided to retire? Now it's not advantageous. You might want to restructure the portfolio to have corporates. Right. Or, or you may want to restructure the portfolio in a way where you're using corporates in your side of your IRA account, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your tenants and your secrets to retirement is putting the right types of investments in the right type of accounts. Correct. But if you just paid 3% to buy a particular municipal bond, guess what's going to happen when you call that same broker who sold it to you and you said, I want to sell this now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you, you, you are going to get abused for another 3%. Yeah, right. So theoretically, right, you could buy the bond, hold it for a year, and turn around and say, hey, I need to rebalance my portfolio. Yeah. Sell that. They're not going to go. Oh well, hey, this time on the way out, we're going to give you. We're going to give it to you free because you bought. You're going to get hit with another three percent. You just wiped out multiple years of what you thought you were saving in, in hiring a professional advisor or just buying a low cost index municipal index fund. Right. Which, by the way, if you're buying an index fund that's buying. Those those bond managers are not paying three percent spreads. I was just going to mention that. Do you think the the, van, the, the 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 manager of the Vanguard Municipal Bond Fund is going to pay three percent spreads on a particular position? No, no way. How many how many billions and billions of dollars are in this fund? How much leverage do they have to get the best price possible on that trade? Tons of leverage, right? Right. Relative to you or me or any. Yeah, other the, the Pim, Pimco Bond Fund Company, right? They're they're not getting getting taken advantage by brokers yeah. who are, who basically are working them over on these bonds. Now, do you think they want disclosure when they purchase those bonds inside that fund? That how, hey, how much did you buy, buy pay for this fund? Well, they're they're going to have to demand that. They're going to they're going to want to know. Exactly. And they're on their own calculations to see if it's a good deal or not. But not three percent spreads. I'm sure of that. Yeah. So you you run into a huge problem when you're if you're if you're looking at it from a portfolio management perspective and a bigger picture. Um, my answer to this is that you shouldn't be out there letting your brokers sell you individual bonds anyway, uh, unless there's their treasuries that you wanted to hold because they're, they, they're yeah. a lot more liquid. Go ahead. Exactly. I was, yeah. Just agreeing with you hundred percent that if you're going to be buying individual bonds, it better be treasury because there's an enormous market for that. And there's not very much a likelihood that you'll get the, the wool pulled over your eyes as it were. A lot less than than in this area. So that was just one thing I wanted to say, Ethan. I mean, it's it's in order to get the adequate diversification, you need to have a significant amount of money. If you're going to be buying individual municipal bonds, um, it, it's clear that if you do smaller trade sizes, the smaller it is, the more they work you over. That's exactly right. Um, you shouldn't be buying bonds based on just the yield to maturity that gets quoted to you alone, which is what the broker's going to want to say. Yeah. Is, hey, you don't need to worry about all this other stuff. It's a good yield. Your point was there's, if it is good yield, a, a very high yield, in spite of the fact that they're likely 
marking it up a lot, yeah. it's because there's risk in the bond. Well, I, in, in the old days, uh, looking back about, I don't know, old days, call it 12 years ago, <laughs> uh, working in the, in the industry, uh, the firm I was working for at the time, they, they happened to have the same type of thing. Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to sell individual bonds to you if you'd like. But the hottest bonds out there, well, guess what, were, were auto bonds, particularly GM in particular. They, those bonds were, were yielding a lot higher rates of return relative to similar maturity other bonds from a bank or whatever else. Well, we know why. There's inherently more risk in those bonds. But yet the yield was, was, was very attractive. And so that caused a lot of investors to buy it. But I don't know if you guys remember, but didn't GM go bankrupt here back to the, the crisis? They had to get restructured and bought out by the government, basically. So there was more risk that was the, the market knew about in advance. But yet a lot of investors were stuck with these bonds, and not just a little bit. In fact, they were hundreds of thousands of dollars of these particular bonds in clients' portfolios. I mean, they weren't just like, hey, I only had 10000 bucks worth of a million-dollar portfolio. The GM bonds were my entire bond portfolio a lot of times. And it's because, hey, the yields are fantastic. What's the odds that the company's going to be out of business? Well, you're paying for it, right? And then my ex- on top of this, yeah, my experience of how those, when you're just calling a broker and they're saying, hey, we'll help you manage this, it's what, what do we have in inventory today and how much money do you have? It's, a, it's, not, it's not a sophisticated process of hey we how we're going to own 100 bonds from all different areas around different industry groups right it tends to be very odd like and i've met with people and said well how did you wind up with fifty thousand dollars of this bond and five thousand dollars of this bond (laughs) and there's really no rhyme or reason to it yeah um other than well that's what they had and this is how much money i had to invest at the time yeah it becomes very difficult to actually take a prudent approach to to managing the portfolio that way when you're being sold issues. Right. Um, and because it is expensive, it's not a great idea to go, oh, well, I'm going to sell half of this $50,000 bond and then allocate it across the other 20 bonds. It, it's, it's very inefficient. No doubt. All right. So the other articles, things that have been getting um, a lot of press are these, these this idea of a... Um, Two other articles from different time periods, but within a week of each other. Uh, a low-risk trade is getting less safe, and then why boring stocks have an edge over exciting ones. And so the one article talks about the fact that um, boring stocks they're referring to as stocks that have exhibited the least historical volatility. Mm-hmm. So companies that, that have less ups and downs in them. Um <clears throat> Some research has been put out that shows that hey that those those types of stocks have generated higher rates of return. I don't know if you've spent much time looking at it, Ethan. Uh, they uh, are they talking specifically about the value types of companies? Is that well, no, that's not right? what they're using as a criteria. They're just saying that um, by historical volatility, we mean the magnitude of a stock's price swings over a specific period of time. Hmm. Take Apple, whose stock has certainly been one of the more volatile in recent years. Its shares have lost 21% over the last 12 months compared with a 20% gain for those stocks with the least historical volatility, as measured by the MSCI USA Minimum Volatility Index. Okay. So we've got a couple minutes here, but my point as you read through this article, Why Boring Stocks Have an Age, is that I am not convinced. We are not targeting low volatility asset classes or, or the ETFs that have been created or in the article they they go on to talk about a, a website um, where you can go and 
um, they'll give you a list because it says the clear investment implication is to load up your portfolio with boring stocks and shun the most volatile ones. And then they give, I'm not going to give the website because I don't think people should be doing this. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but it wouldn't be hard to find. Um, which, to me, there's a lot of flaws in this and a lot of reasons why we're not investing this way. Um, interestingly enough, that this article came out, which was put on the Wall Street Journal, um, June 7th, but they published one on June 1st that said a lowest a low-risk trade is getting less safe. It says investors have been piling into low-volatility funds, um, and they say, but now they're basically saying they're overvalued. <laughs> um, so it's a little interesting, uh, just kind of an example of you know, How the media works. Yeah, when we get back, I'd like to talk a little bit I think about we should. Finish dissecting these articles and then talk a little bit about how this is the kind of stuff that goes on all the time. Right. That sounds good. Well, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back at empiricalinvesting.com. And again, if you want to call, the last segment here, it's 866-472-5790, or contact at empiradio.com if you want to shoot us an email. We'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com that's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back on Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith here. Uh, I believe this is the last segment for the day, right, guys? Right. Although we have about a, about a nine-minute segment left to go here, and we're just... Uh, so savor it, Ethan. I will. I'll try to speak more slowly then. Okay. Really, really enjoy it. Um, yeah, right before the break, we're just talking about uh, two articles that appear to be at odds with each other, appearing in the same publication within about a week of each other, uh, talking about low-volatility uh, stocks, and whether they're good or bad or, or whatever. Well, to be fair, Ethan, I don't know that the Wall Street Journal or any of these places are saying, hey, we're here to present you with a consistent investment philosophy. They have different writers who go out and research things, and then it looks like they, they write things. The point I we, we would make, because we have the job of trying to help people be successful with their financial decision-making, mm-hmm. right? 
But a lot of times people come to us with articles and say, hey, I read this article and it was in this or that publication that is seems respectable. But what they don't realize is the very next week, the same, even on CNBC, I always say this, right? You can watch it. Yeah. They'll have one expert come on and say, hey, right now, stocks are the greatest thing that you can get your hands on. And then the very next day, they'll have someone else say, yeah. I would get as far away from stocks as possible. And that's clearly what they do, right? And so it's yeah. up to you to realize that and say, well, really, I shouldn't be getting advice. This is not a, a place for me to get to make any be doing any decision making other than if I really just want to get a gauge of what's going on. I like how they put the the market returns if you wanted to see what's going on. But but if I was actually trying to manage anything, um, I would not be getting any advice or doing anything from what anybody says on that program. Unless it's grounded in some kind of academic research and it's longer term type of investment advice. But if it's, hey, where's the market going now or what yeah. area should you be, which is a big part of the show. Yeah. But they don't want to put the, they wouldn't be in business if they put themselves out on the line with the kind of calls they make. So it's easier, I think, to just have different writers or just have different people, experts come on and go, hey, we're just bringing these guys on so that you get a chance to listen and, and learn or whatever and make better. But we're not taking responsibility for what any of these guys are saying. Right. And go ahead. I just think it's funny. Like, if you're most investors, obviously. Funny, haha. I, I don't know. It's funny, haha. <laughs> most people, I think, who, who read the Wall Street Journal think it's a pretty reputable publication, which it is. I mean, it, it is. It is. It's pretty prestigious. But the advice that you get, and I don't think people think of it as, hey, well, I'm not going to take it. They're not really giving me investment advice. That's kind of what they're reading it for, I think. And here, the investment de- de- advice depends on exactly what day you read the paper. Only a week, week apart. It's, it's just a, a funny thing. If you, you're reading these, these articles, looking at Money Magazine, Wall Street Journal, apparently, or watching MSNBC, realize that the investment advice you get depends on the day you watch or the day you read it. Um, and then you're right. It isn't consistent, and that isn't their, their notion, I don't think. But um, if you're take, doing, taking away from any of those sources actionable steps, then I think that's, that could be an issue, unless it's backed up with other, other fact-checking going on. And at least I believe that they do some some vetting in terms of the qualifications, maybe of who they're having write the articles. But I've been forwarded articles from from people, investors mm-hmm. before, from people who have really I wouldn't trust them to back my car out of the driveway, <laughs> and I, and they're not reputable. They have no, but yet they're if they're the more extreme the particular view is, yeah, the, the quicker somebody will put them. On a, a blog or a website, or post up an article, or, and but why someone would listen to that and say, "Well, geez, I, this person's saying that the world is coming to an end, and I need to be, you know, moving out into the hills and and selling all my possessions, converting everything into gold bars." That'll, I, I don't understand why people listen to that and don't realize what's going on with that. That most more often than not, the quickest way to get notoriety. We talk about that Harry Dent guy all the time. Yeah. Is to make outlandish predictions, right? Sometimes you'll actually be right, and no one seems to hold them accountable when they're not, right? They, if they had nothing and they had a book to sell or whatever it is, they have nothing to lose by going out and saying these outlandish things, but everything to gain, right? By it. That's true. And so, just real quick, Ethan, coming back to these articles, we're out of time, but the one. June first here. I just thought it was interesting because it's titled "A Risk: A Low Risk Trade Is Getting Less Safe," and they're saying hey, investors have been piling into these low volatility exchange traded funds, which I'm surprised. It, it, it seems um, very counter to what 
I would be doing, but but followers of the strategy may be buying the right funds at the wrong time. Investors may be overpaying for that perceived safety, and as a result, taking on more risks than they realize. And they say, in recent years, academic evidence has piled up showing that stocks with the smallest price wings provide better returns. The reason why I'm not convinced of that is there may be a study that demonstrates that, just like there may be a study that says every time a particular baseball team wins, the market goes up, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that I'm convinced that that that's the real cause of why the market is going up. I need more evidence that really ties that to, hey, we found that I, I, it's it's very well documented. Hey, stocks should have a higher expected return than treasuries because there's more risk there. And we have a long record of stocks outperforming those. And we can really test this to make sure that, that, that there is a causal relationship in that. Right. Some of these other things that have come out, particularly and conveniently after the, the markets declined mm-hmm. as silver bullet solutions, right. like just focusing on dividends and, and downplaying the fact that they are just as times risky as any other stock. Sure. But anyway, this flies in the, in the face of conventionalism that higher earning returns um, requires taking on higher risk, but it's music to the ears, blah, blah, blah. And they go on and, and just say that um, this Michael Jones, chief investment officer guy, sees uh, um, that they're that they're they're overpriced by about twenty percent is what the the article. Oh, here it is. Riverfund estimates that low volatility stocks, as a group, are over are thirty to forty percent overvalued. Actually, uh, instead, investors should be looking in the opposite direction towards stocks that have higher volatility. But then, the very week later is the article that is posted, Why Boring Stocks Have an Edge Over Exciting Ones. And the conclusion of it was, you know, it says right here, um, the clear investment implication is to load up your portfolio with boring stocks and shun the most volatile ones. <laughs> it's, you couldn't be more opposite. <laughs> and the sad part is a lot of people don't necessarily read every single day or for over the, and then go, hey, I, I've read all the different positions on this. It happens to be when you happen to tune in or someone forwards you this article yeah. that you could have people doing two exact opposite things that they read on the same exact site from the same pu- publication, right? Um, neither one of them are good strategies, in my opinion. Yeah, and I would argue, argue, argue this, too, that you know the biggest, the best source for that type of information, i.e. investment decision information, is not an article in the Wall Street Journal or an article in Money Magazine or Fortune or wherever else. The best source for this type of information is really, I think, in the peer-reviewed literature that comes out from the, in the academic journals. Those are the things that it really have, in my view, have the most oomph um, in terms of being able to deliver, hey, the conclusion reached here on this particular topic, you can take it to the bank. It's To best of our knowledge, this is the best way to go. Here, this is really just one man's opinion and not backed up by, by tons and tons of academic peer-reviewed research. And there's another one that was forwarded to me back from May. It was protecting your portfolio from a downturn. And basically what the premise of this, because we don't, don't have time, was just that buying investment managers are mutual funds that went down less than others during market downturns has been shown in their study to lead to better performance. Hmm. And um, there's a variety of reasons why I wouldn't pursue that blindly. Yeah, um, And we can maybe talk about that next week. I think it sounds good. We're running out of time here. I just want to invite you again to call us throughout the week at Empirical. You can reach us at 
923-4307. Feel free to ask for Ethan or Ken. You can shoot me an email at ksmith at empirical.net. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 